The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. You're welcome back to The Hard Shoulder. Kieran Cuddy with you until 7 o'clock, and I'm delighted to be joined in studio by Mark Little for the Thursday interview, the journalist, the broadcaster, the podcaster, the entrepreneur. Uh, Mark, how are you? I'm great. I'm exhausted just listening to all oh, of I know, that. I know. Well, I know people would want me to ask what's the next project because then I've seen the success of Storyful and Kinsen and that they'll want to get in on the ground floor and what's next. Yeah, I met a, an investor who invested me in the old days in Storyful, and, and he said, like, I said to him, just if I ever come to you looking for money for a new startup, shoot me in the head. <laughs> so I'm under agreement with my family and never to do it again. No. Uh, it's it's a pretty tough road. Yeah. So yeah, I'm pretty pretty glad to be at a point now where I can take a bit of a bit of a break or rest at least. A now, uh, I mean, do you really believe that when no. you say make that promise? No. <laughs> Not at all. No, I didn't think so. No, no, I've been blessed or cursed in my life with only one talent and that's to look around the corner and get excited about what I see. There's a great old line from the Buscocks from the 1980s. There's a great song title called Nostalgia for a Time Yet to Come. So every time I see something exciting about the future, whether it's artificial intelligence or whatever it is, I get excited all over again like I was 20 years old. And I think that's, again, as I say, a curse and a blessing. So, I mean, so the the motivation for setting up these companies, like, is it born of technological curiosity then or an entrepreneurial streak? It's a problem. It's something I've countered that I've said to myself, Chase, that's a problem. Like the last one with Kinzen, it was the fact that when you get up in the morning, you get online to all your news feeds, you're just overwhelmed. Mm. No idea what's true, what's not true, how you're being manipulated. So we set out on that journey to try to solve that problem. So we had this idea of what we wanted to do. Now, no real idea how we were actually going to solve it all. So I think that's what every, journal, every entrepreneur will tell you. And I think journalists as well, actually. We're intrigued by a problem. We're not looking for the solution necessarily. We just want to know why it works. We want to take it apart, see what's inside, and see if we can do something about it. There's also a bit of ego, I suppose, for every journalist. And I always quote the the Jewish text, the Talmud, when it says, you know, if not me, who? If not now, when? So if you see a problem, you kind of have a responsibility now that you know it's broken to try and fix it. And there's that, that's what turns you into an entrepreneur from being somebody who just thinks about it. Yeah, but I guess the, the difference with journalism is that you know, you maybe seek to fix it by focusing attention on it so that people, you know, with the resources or who are equipped to fix it might do it. The difference is you you, you see yourself in that role. Yeah, that's a good point. But I I do think with journalism, maybe what's going to change is we're going to be thinking a lot more of what people are calling now solutions journalism. So let's say, for example, we're all all looking at the poll today in the newspaper. Who's up, who's down? It's like a horse race. Is it Sinn Féin the biggest party? A Fianna Fáil dropped or whatever it may be. But really our job is government, right? Our job is to say, why are people not being housed properly in this country? What's, Mm. What's going on with the migration policy? And so too often I think journalism kind of sees itself as this elite caste of high priests and priestesses who are there to tell people what to think instead of being down there with the people thinking, why is government broken? How do we fix it? And if you define a problem, you do have a responsibility to fix it. And, and that's sort of the job of the entrepreneur. Yeah. But I would argue it's increasingly the job of the journalist to make sure that people know we've got their back. And how do you do that without flirting with kind of classic populism as opposed to popularism? Because what you described there is almost fits the mold exactly. I'm, I'm with the masses and I'm kind of shouting with them up at the elite. Yeah, you know, yeah. all you have to add to that to make it the perfect populist statement is the elite who are dot 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 who are screwing you over. It's a great question. It comes back to well, I've studied a lot the, the concept of trust, and one of the things every survey tells you is that the people you trust most are the people that have your back. 
I remember going to some presidential campaigns in the US and I remember going to a diner once and asked this guy, how do you pick a presidential candidate to vote for? And he said, I want someone like me just smarter. <laughs> and I think in some ways that's kind of like a journalist should be is to say, okay, climate change, such a big problem. There you go, sort it out for yourself. Instead of saying, well, actually, how can I give you a bit of power as a citizen, right? Uh, let's talk about solar panels. Can we get them on your roof? Can you be part of the solution? Mm. So it's not about turnarounds and give them the easy option. Uh, hit them in the soft part, make them feel their prejudice are being listened to. It's actually saying, okay, we've got a problem here. Can I point out to you five or six ways that people in other countries have dealt with this problem? Can I point out perhaps where you're being manipulated, where there's false information spreading around mm. about migrants creating crime? So it's actually saying, I got your back. And so I always think of journalists, you think about the moment you're in a group of people, your mates, someone you're going to look to for the recommendation for Netflix, someone for the next gadget, someone who knows something about banking or financing, and ultimately, you choose people to trust who have your back. And I think that's where we failed, I think, in journalism. And when did that failure begin? I think it's a lot to do with this sort of idea that journalism is, is an institution, right? The, the, the fourth estate, we, we sort of separate, mm. like, the courts, the government, and then we have the media over here. And we almost felt ourselves, I remember, you know, when I was a journalist... Uh, we didn't want to hear about the ratings, right? <laughs> we were doing it because it was the right story to do, but we weren't understanding was it connecting with people, was it serving their problem as they saw it. So I think when we, we were we felt there like we were some sort of elevated class of people, the gatekeepers, you know, when I was, you know, think about it, starting journalism, I was the man in the telly. You had to sit down at nine o'clock passively and yeah. listen to what I was telling you. And I think we kind of like that power, and I think today, because of the internet, it's all changed. We have to think about the strength of our journalism is our ability to connect with the community that we serve. Mm. That's what's changed. And how do you do that without sounding like you're you're falling into the exact trap you describe and talking down to people when the issue that you seek to connect with the community about is an issue that the community, and again, there's, even as I say it, it comes across as patronising, but that the community yeah. have gotten wrong, as it were. And I know even as I say, people are saying, who are you to determine what is wrong and right? But, you know, let's take a classic case of like a moral panic over something yeah. that isn't true. And, you know, how do you not yeah. then come across as some kind of elitist talking down to them when you say, you've all got this wrong, folks. A good way of thinking about it is like if you've, over the last, let's say, four or five years, during the pandemic, for example, you had a crazy Uncle Frank that would send you a video, right? Oh, yeah. Here's the, here's oh, the you've cure. Met, you've met my Uncle Frank. <laughs> we all have Uncle Frank, right? Somebody in your social circle or in your WhatsApp who turns around and tells you, oh, now look at this. If you just drink this mercury now, it's going to get rid of your COVID. Yeah. And so your reaction to that is laugh at them, scorn them, be condescending to them. No. The only way to stop the spread of that kind of false information is to turn around and go, I feel your pain. You're sitting at home, raging at your impotence, uh, wanting a solution to be simple. I understand that. I feel the same way too. I'm right there with you. I feel that anger. But can I just point out, you're probably being manipulated by someone who's trying to lie to you, actually. Yeah. And in fact, they're trying to hijack you. And so I think about that a lot when I see something like debates about migration, immigration. Like if I'm living in a community that's been deprived, suddenly to find amongst myself, you know, immigrants coming in, I understand that restlessness, that sense of what's happening here. And I understand how easy it is to be manipulated by people who haven't got your best interests at heart. So I think about that issue, very similarly to the way that we all deal with people in our social circle, that were for good reasons just fell through some hole into all of this toxic sludge of information. Mm. And so I think there's a similar thing there to how you would treat somebody in your family you love and care about 
in a way that's respectful, but also challenge them and say, I understand why, yeah. but can I just advise you perhaps there's people trying to hijack you. And, but again, to, let, let's stick with the, the comparison. Um, Uncle Frank is related to me by blood. He can't go anywhere. He has to listen to me. We're going to meet up at the First Holy Communion or whatever it happens to be. Somebody in the community who has had their their frustrations, their genuine frustrations exploited by kind of some malign actor, they're, they're, they don't have to listen to me or they don't have to listen to anybody in the mainstream media. They actually can just listen to the people they choose to listen to who regurgitate and amplify and compound the message. So how do you reach them? Yeah, and I think this is what we're missing now. And, I, and this is where the internet has a role, negative role. We've lost the spaces to disagree. Like if mm-hmm. you walked into a pub years ago and you found someone with a completely opposite point of view, you faced them, you knew who they were. You know, and the price of walking out of that pub having a screaming match was very high for both sides, right? You needed to have to a point where, ah, well, let's just disagree about that. Who's ordering the next pint? Yeah. Because of the internet, it's so anonymous and we can walk on and we can say whatever we want without limits. And there isn't a place anymore to disagree. And the price of disagreement so high, right? Think about the pandemic. Like, if you look back, the science was wrong at certain points. But, of course, people who defended at the time don't want to admit that. No. But we were in the middle of an emergency, so we need to take emergency measures, and people who disagree with that won't accept it. So we have lost the places in which we used to go to disagree, uh, whether that was a community meeting or down the pub or even on the traditional media where there is some professional code of conduct about balance. And I think with the internet, obviously, that's all been wiped away like a tidal wave has come and taken away those spaces. And like the, the, there's an argument that that's, we're still in the teething phase of all of that and that oh, yeah. it, you know, it, it levels out. So if the market finds a solution would be the, the kind of maybe the laissez-faire um, phrase to apply. Um you know, and that we do, like we, we we will get back to a place where there yeah. is that room for disagreement because it's yeah. it's human nature. It's a great but point. Maybe that's a triumph of hope over expectation. No, I think I have great hope for my children. Right? They have far better bullshit detectors, if I can use that yes. phrase, than the other generation. Like, I mean, older people are the ones who fall victim a lot of the times to people on the internet telling them something is true. Younger people have a highly developed sense of literacy about what's going on. So here's what I would predict. When I'm old enough to remember the first Macintosh computer I ever used, a liberation. I went through 20 years of thinking technology was an act of God. I was intoxicated by freedom. 2016, kind of woke up to the fact, no, wait a minute, there's a lot of people out there, the enemies of democracy have hijacked and weaponized the internet. So I think we're going through the beginnings of a 20-year period that will take another generation to come along and rebuild things like social media. So new platforms that are not about hijacking your worst instinct, but about rewarding your best intention. Now, we're in the early the stages. of our better nature. Yeah, but also thinking about it. I, in my phone today, in your phone, we have apps that help us plan a better sleep routine, a diet, a fitness routine, right? I think more and more we're going to see the emergence of new social media platforms that act like that sort of nudge to get it to a better place. I'm not saying it'll happen tomorrow. Um, I happen to like platforms that come back at me with something I didn't expect Yeah, that reward me for paying attention or for maybe listen to somebody I don't agree with. So I think we're in the early stage, but that's what I think will emerge. We'll need regulation. I think we'll need new companies. We won't need Elon Musk's Twitter. <laughs> and we will also, most of all, need a generation that are calling out the BS around them. 
that are saying, that's not good enough. I want something new. And that's where we're going to get the change. But it'll take time. And are, are these the types of issues, to one degree or another, you get into with the new podcast? Tell me about this. Yeah, so I've been fascinated. I've been privilege uh, to be on the fault line over 30 years of journalism and technology and business and all that kind of stuff to be at that moment things change and I'm always amazed by first of all people don't know they're going through history when it's happening like I happen to think this moment in history is like no other like the other day we have chat GPT this new technology took weeks to get from zero to 100 million users took the printing press hundreds of years to have an impact so this moment in history is like no other where brains are being rewired. So it's so important that we can accurately predict a future in a time when the only constant is change. And so that's the idea of the history of the future, this podcast I'm doing with the Trinity Long Room Hub. The second part was, I don't think politicians, journalists, or even the people who make the technology are the people who can predict the future. It's the writers, the artists, the people who understand humanity. I would actually read science fiction first before I'd actually go to someone predicting the future. So I challenge everyone to go and look for David Bowie, the internet, 1990. David Bowie gave a description of the internet to Newsnight back in 1990 that is so eerie. He talks about life on Mars. It's the internet. And so for me, that was what the inspiration was. David Bowie, so we put together a podcast and we're looking at human emotions like fear, as we've just discussed, uh, the concepts of truth, and we've got some really great thinkers, a lot from Trinity College, where we're mm. based in this Schuler Democracy Forum. And myself and the co-host, Ellie Payne, have been looking for those people that understand humanity uh, rather than the technology itself. Yeah, it, it, for people, if they haven't listened to any of it yet, there's, I think, three episodes. And there's great archival audio, actually, the whole way through it. It's brilliant, not just uh, Bowie. But um, you, you make an observation in one of the episodes. You say, you know, it's... It, if you look back in time, the people who did try to predict the technology, they're the kind of ones with egg on their face. It's the people who, who predicted human behavior, how behavior would change, tended to, to be more accurate. We, which begs the obvious question, how will human behavior change in the future? So I think there's a thing happening right now where we are human beings living in an age of superhuman technology. So artificial intelligence is a great example yeah. right now. We're all now coming to terms with the idea that I can go on and I can ask a computer to draw, a, you know, Kieran's style of painting uh, or construct a sentence, you know, in the style of someone else. And what we're realizing is this technology almost looks human. And it's causing us immense amounts, I think, of uncertainty and will for a long time. But I think the change that's happening is very positive. We're starting to realize what is inherently human that a machine will never replicate. Expertise, intelligence, knowledge, and the emotion of two people sitting with each other, looking in their eyes like we are Mm. now, and getting an idea that they didn't expect. That will never be replicated. So I think this advent of new technology that all sounds and looks like human beings is going to force us to sit back and go, wait a minute, what's truly human? And I think that's why I'm a real optimist about this moment in time while I think a lot of people are pessimists. So just like when Twitter came along, I could see the bad sides. But it also gave a voice to a lot of people who had been voiceless before. So every wave of technology, we focus on the bad things. But I also think if you look at how it's going to change human behavior, I think ironically, the superhuman tech might make us more human. And when you said um, that, you know, people don't realise when they're living through change, and the classic example is always, you know, you go to the Roman in the field uh, and ask, <laughs> you know, when, 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 when did the Roman Empire collapse? And they say, what do you mean the Roman Empire has collapsed? Um, the, the pace of change that's happening now, 
are you suggesting that this is the first time where we we can recognize as it's happening that that we are living through change? Yeah, because like, I mean, it's so fast. History's like water. You're in water. You don't notice the change in the temperature until it's boiling, right? Yeah, the frog. Yeah, and the frog in the water, right? And I always think about that moment. But today we've got this am- amazing moment where it's never been a better time to be a human being in history, right? In every index from mortality, duration of your life, education, equality. At the same moment, we've never had crises like we've had right now. We've never had things like the pandemic, uh, war in Europe, and of course, climate change. So we've got this contradiction mm. where if you're not optimistic, you're not paying attention. And if you're not scared out of your wits, you're not paying attention. And I don't think that has ever been the case in human history. So that makes must really has to face into our worst fears. And that's part of what I would adv- advise people is don't run away. Recognize your fear, face into your fear, and find people that can help you navigate a moment where the only constant is change. And the thing is, keep two opposing points of view in your mind without going mad. So not everybody who is worried about immigration policy is a racist. At the same time, you know, people who are appealing to your fear are not necessarily on your side. So it's just an example of how I think we can be all a bit future-proofed if we acknowledge these things in our brain that are contradictory. History of the Future. The History of the Future is the name of the podcast. Uh, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure. Kieran, thanks for having me. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.